0: Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponised and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. My name's Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth.
1: Uh, my name is Ian Dunt. I'm the author of How to Be a Liberal and a Columnist for the Iron Newspaper.
0: So, Ian, uh, explain our impetus for this series.
1: I don't know. I mean, maybe you're going to have a different view to me. I, I, I sort of feel it, it would be quite helpful if people had any idea what the fuck they were talking about uh, when they discussed politics. And actually, at the moment, there's very little of that around, right? So... And presumably it was always the case that words and politics operated this way. But you see key terms, centrist, neoliberal, woke, that are thrown around predominantly as weapons, you know, as a smear against other people. There's no attempt to try and comprehend what's actually going on in the word. And it doesn't just sort of do a discredit to the person doing it. It kind of degrades our capacity to understand the world around us and to I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm about to start singing or you know reciting a poem but to, to kind of understand each other and the ideas that other people have in their heads.
0: Well one of the things that I found when researching books was that it was just so important to cut through all the kind of the debris that accumulates around a a, a word or a historical incident or a person over the years and really go back to the source and go okay like you know what was going on what were people thinking what were people trying to convey Mm -hmm. then you can track how those and in this case how those words and concepts evolve but I think if you're only coming in sort of midway through the story perhaps sort of decades into the story you're seeing this word thrown about with the best will in the world I don't think You know, there are a lot of these words where it's very hard to have a clear sense of what they they mean or the different things that they can mean depending on who's using them. Mm -hmm. And the idea of just going back, digging into, you know, books and articles and really thinking hard about what happened, where these things started, the origins, if you will, (laughs) that that would be useful. I mean, useful for us, but hopefully useful for a lot of people. Who would just like a little more sort of clarity and a little more facts, and they don't have to agree with us uh, on every interpretation, but at least there's something solid to go on. It's not just a, a political football that's, you know, all the air's leaking out of it.
1: Nice metaphor. I really really enjoyed that. You don't usually use sporting
0: metaphors.
1: (laughs) So as soon as you mentioned the football, I thought, I don't know if this shit's going to work out, to be honest. There's going
0: to be more of these.
1: Um, You've written about this before, but it's this sense of the kind of frenzy of the present. And we kind of act when we debate politics as if now is completely different to before. Mm, You know, mm, there's no history mm, to any of this stuff. mm. We're just doing this for the first time. And actually, one of the weird things is when you look at these stories... You'll find that we are kind of having the same debate over and over again right. often decade after decade. But also, that there's kind of no reason not to look at the stories, right? Because the stories are fascinating. Like, you know, they're full of these big personalities. People yeah. who do incredible things, utter bastards, you know, who yeah. completely collapsed whole economies. And you're just like, why would we even avoid that kind of history when it's just so rich?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's it. The, 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 the storytelling aspect of it is, is really exciting to me because if you want to, you know, all ideas start with people and to sort of, once something becomes quite sort of a nebulous floating concept out mm. there, like, like, like an ism, it can be a little hard to pin down. It becomes very contested. To go back and try and get into the room where people were originally coming up with these ideas and originally arguing about them is so exciting to me
1: there's um like a chance for us i think here to like just create a space i hope which is just detached from the fucking endless screaming and disingenuousness of political debate at the moment, of people who don't really want things to be clear. And like we, we have certain ideas going in, and we definitely have certain biases, and we have certain positions. But as long as we're upfront about them, like we are going to put in the work on this one. And I actually do our own research, but in a good way. <laughs> and, you know, try, try and create a space where you can fairly and legitimately try to understand the ideas that impact our world today.
0: Wonderful. Well, let's get started on episode one. Ian, why have we decided to not just talk about McCarthyism, but to start with McCarthyism? What is it about the way that word is being used?
1: I see it misused on right and left in roughly equal capacity on pretty much a weekly basis we're going to have some we're going to pick some words for this series that it's like a daily hourly basis it's not quite that bad, <laughs> but but McCarthyism, I'd say, is probably misused on a weekly basis. The most obvious examples right now. I mean, I saw another... Do you you know Alex Jones, that lunatic conspiracy theorist in the US? I mean, his response to being called in front of uh, the January 6th committee was instantly to go there. I mean, he said, it's a witch hunt, which has lied about myself. It's a criminal subpoena. This is something that Joseph McCarthy did to a lot of people in America, although he added the essential ending to that. And it turned out some of the people he was targeting are actually guilty. <laughs> like, oh, well done. You even got that one wrong, Alex. Congratulations.
0: Yeah, Cause I see it, for example, I see it, um, in, um, members of the lame party who have been accused of antisemitism. semitism mm-hmm. They complain about McCarthyism, people being called up to January 6th committee, um, um, any you know, conservatives and further to the right than that um, who get um, anybody, any pushback at all, mm. any kind of consequences, you know, Twitter suspension or something. And the word just seems to mean um, it's synonymous with witch hunt. And, of, of course, in the classic sort of allegory for McCarthyism, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, you know, maybe he is, he is sort of largely responsible for the, the conflation of the two. Mm. Um, and witch hunts O'Connor and Oddworld, of course, because witches didn't exist. So as soon as you say it's a witch hunt, it's just like, well, it, it, I, it, I must be completely innocent. And that does underlie a lot of these complaints about McCarthyism. Everyone knows McCarthyism was bad, even if they didn't know exactly what it was. Um, and it's always used to be like, I am being unfairly persecuted, even when, as is quite often the case, well, they do, they do have a case to answer. Like, it's not. Being accused of something is not McCarthyism, because you might have done it. And, and as we'll discuss, there are all kinds of other components to McCarthyism, to what uh, Joe McCarthy did and what his contemporaries did, which are quite specific and very pernicious, and I think it's important to restore a sort of sense of seriousness and gravity to the word, so that you're not just complaining that, you know, everyone who doesn't like you is a McCarthyite. So if we're going to be discussing what a word means, we should first consult the highest authority, the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> so, McCarthyism, from the name of Joseph R. McCarthy, 1908-57, US Senator. The policy of hunting out, open brackets, suspected, close brackets, communists, and removing them from government departments or other positions, hence McCarthyist, of or pertaining to McCarthyism, and McCarthyite, one who gave support to such a policy. Uh, first citation, the New York Post, 5th of April 1950, to call McCarthyism a fascist atmosphere would be descriptive enough. Ian, first thoughts on this definition? Don't like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that seems to me
1: to completely take on board his narrative which was that that was what he was doing. I mean, firstly, I think he, he ultimately had very little interest in communist spies. Secondly, most of the stuff he ended up going for were... I mean, the first victims were people who were communists in some way or had been at some time, but ultimately sort of the real the victims of, of this thing were the people who sort of always become the victims of witch hunts at moments of national paranoia. It's gay people, it's Jewish people, it's free thinkers, eccentrics progressives, liberals. I mean, really, ultimately, when you're going through the story, there's actually, you come across actually quite few communists and certainly almost no communist spies whatsoever once you get to actually what McCarthy's well, doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, the way that it puts suspects it in brackets mm. is the sort of bet hedging, which I do not expect from the OED. <laughs> because whether or not they were actually communists seems quite important, let alone what kind of communists they were. And I should actually mention the first citation here, given by the OED, is only two months after McCarthy appeared on the scene, which is uh, pretty quick to become uh, an ism. But there is actually a previous reference in a Washington Post cartoon, which I think emerged after whenever this edition of the dictionary was, um, which is a week earlier. Hmm. So that's even faster. And I'm going to throw in a definition. I want to run this one by you. This is by Ted Morgan, author of Red's McCarthyism in 20th Century America. The use of false information in the irrational pursuit of a fictitious enemy. I mean, that's quite good on
1: the method. I mean, presumably some of the information was, was accurate, which creates a problem for the definition. And there were some instances of communist spies, most of which have been dealt with before he came up. As we were doing this reading, the, the main thought I had was more that this is thought control. Ultimately, the aim and the effect is thought control. And that's so it seems to be that even that is almost in its own weird way, Mm. a bit too generous and a bit too sort of literal for the process that actually took place.
0: Well, this is about McCarthyism, uh, not just Joe McCarthy. But Ian, start us off with who he was and how he became famous in early 1950.
1: The funny thing is, he's not actually a very interesting bloke. And I think that that's pivotal actually, to what follows. Because it's quite easy to just demonise him into this monstrous entity. In fact, he's pretty average. He's not that remarkable. And what, I think what there is to learn about what happened in that period is more about our own propensity to seek internal enemies at perceived moments of national weakness. So, in fact, it's one of those things that tells you more about yourself and about the public mm. and our psychology than I think it really does about himself. He's born in um, Wisconsin in 1908. He leaves school at 15. He briefly, for about five years, runs a very, very successful chicken farm, which eventually falls apart after this the, the sort of um, intestinal disease. Goes back to school, goes to university. He's, there's nothing particularly special about him during this period. He's not particularly smart. He's not particularly stupid. There's one telling incident when he runs for class president against a guy called Charles Curran, and they come up with this sort of gentleman's agreement where they say, oh, look, we're both going to vote for each other and otherwise we're going to have to fight. They get and it's a dead heat and they sort of offer, oh, you can flick a coin if you want. And McCarthy's like, no, 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 let's have a runoff. And he ends up winning that contest by two votes, one of which is his and the other one is his rivals. Mm-hmm. And the story usually kind of ends there cause it's a sort of moment of, oh, look, he'll just do whatever it takes. But there's a little tidbit afterwards that I found quite revealing, which is that um, Curran and he stayed friends for the rest of their lives. And actually, the the comment that you hear over and over about McCarthy is, it was never personal. Now, in the same period, you hear from sort of Harvard physicist Norman Ramsey, who was defending one of his colleagues, and then at the same time went for dinner with McCarthy and his wife. He said, McCarthy, as I learned in this and subsequent encounters, was a man of extremely variable personality. He could be good old Joe, or he could be the very nasty and cruel operator of an inquisition. It was not really correct to describe him as immoral. It's a word that had no meaning to him. The word amoral was really more appropriate.
0: And this sort of explains his uh, his freewheeling approach to uh, the facts, <laughs> um, which often, you know, stems from amorality and his war record. I'm sure you came across, across this is that you started off by claiming he'd flown 14 bombing missions then that got up to 17 by 1951 it was 32 mm. <laughs> um, in reality it was 12 mm-hmm. and he had a limp which he claimed was due to shrapnel in defending his country but in fact he fell down the stairs on the ship
1: yeah, well, that was a <laughs> hazing ritual, wasn't it? They put buckets on their feet, I think, and made them walk down a ladder. And he absolutely ruined his foot. <laughs> and his stories for this foot, by the way, they're very... Di- I mean, at one point, he claims that he was saving a pregnant woman from a submarine. <laughs> Another point, it's that this airplane crashes. He comes up with this wow. variety of yeah, very yeah. heroic instances. In fact, you know, he was basically drunk and he had a nightmarish time. Um, all of that, funnily enough, conceals the fact that he was actually quite brave when he was in the military. He didn't have to go on these missions. He was a commission officer. He basically didn't have to go on a submarine. He didn't have to go on a plane. He chose to do it. Most of the stuff from the time is saying, you know, good soldier. He's quite brave. Mm. And in fact, because of this inveterate lying, I mean, just the the lies start from a very young age and they pursue all the way up until his death. He lies about everything all the time. We're going to have anyone listening to this is obviously going to be thinking about Trump throughout this discussion. Mm. And by the way, I have to tell you that at the end, there's a sting in the tail that makes this... I mean, in a way, by the way, I think this story is almost the origin story of Trump and not just in a sort of broad thematic way, but in a very practical, precise way. This is the origin story of Trump. And he just lies all the time. And funnily enough, when you find some instances in his life where he's actually performed quite admirably, no one one believes them because they just think, well, you know, he's a liar. So when does he enter the Senate? So he gets, so he leaves the army in 1945. He gets in the Senate in 1946. Um, he's running for a Republican. He's previously been a Democrat, by the way, a New Deal, sort of militant New Deal Democrat. Suddenly like becoming a Republican. Much like, Democrat. much like Trump. This will just keep on happening. Yeah, yeah. And, and he gets to this. And, and initially, it's kind of an unremarkable sort of thing. I mean, what, what I think is telling is he just keeps on throwing stuff at the wall to see what will get him attention. That is the core, and it's the core thing of his personality, he's an attention seeker. He's an attention seeking politician. He comes in, there's a coal strike, before he's even a senator actually, and he sort of says, well look, gets a bunch of journalists around him and says we should court-martial the strike leader and execute him if he won't send the workers back. And that gets him a story on page one of the New York Times. Just by saying he's that, happy that loony bit. Exactly. Yeah, that's basically where he wants to always be. Just by going a bit further than everyone else, being a bit outrageous, it gets him a bit of coverage. He then goes in on sugar control of production. And he's, there's, there's an interesting incident. He's, he's on the Senate floor. And he says, out of nowhere, within the past 10 minutes, I've received word from the Department of Agriculture that they've gone over the figures which we've been submitting. Now, this is a complete fabrication. So there's another senator on the floor who says, well, I've just spoken to the Secretary of Agriculture, Clinton Anderson. And he says that that's not true. McCarthy just says, I don't give a tinker's damn what Secretary Anderson says about the matter. The sugar is here. So already you see that just Mm. complete indifference towards the truth. But really, he's a laughingstock. There's not much to him. And there really isn't much to him and much attention to him until we get to the wheeling speech. And the Wheeling speech is interesting. So, I mean, the the Wheeling speech is the moment the McCarthyism sort of begins. It's 1950. And he goes to the Lincoln Memorial Lecture, I think it is. And he goes with a briefcase with two speeches in it. And one speech is a very dry speech on housing policy, which I, and I imagine most modern-day Americans, wish he'd given. (laughs) And the other speech is on communist uh, spies. And to give it a bit of context where we are right now, you know, this is an America at this point which is feeling like it's losing. You know, China has become communist. You're embroiled in a war with Korea. He says, while I cannot take the time to name all of the men in the State Department who've been named as active members of the Communist Party and members of aspiring, I have here in my hand a list of 205, a list of names that were made known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working and, shape- and shaping policy at the State Department. Now, that number changes. 205, later it's 27, 207, well, he didn't have a because sh- he didn't
0: have a piece of paper. <laughs> he didn't,
1: he didn't, he didn't he have didn't. a list. <laughs> said, exactly. It's a prop. The whole thing is a prop. And yet it's the thing that really triggers all this intense interest yeah. in him. And, and that finally he gets the media attention that he wants. I mean, his secretary at the time says, this is executive secretary, Mary Brinkle D'Escoli says he went nearly insane with excitement. He clutched the newspapers and ran around the Senate office shouting, I've got it. I've got it. He's the guy that was flicking whatever he could at the wall to see what worked. And finally, he finds something that worked. Real McCarthyism, this hunt for communist spies, does not start with him, right? I mean, he's actually quite late to the party.
0: Yes, there's a newspaperman who said that blaming McCarthyism on McCarthy is like blaming the temperature on the thermometer. (laughs) America likes a red scare. There's a, a first red scare after the 1917 revolution. Uh, for obvious reasons. The second Red Scare kicks off after the Second World War. But it sort of starts in 1938 with the formation of a committee tasked with investigating Americans with communist or fascist sympathies. Mm. And this, you would have heard of it, is the House Un-American <laughs> Activities Committee, or HUAC, originally known as the Dyes Committee after Martin Dyes Jr., a Texas Democrat. It was actually set up by two Democrats. It was meant to focus on fascists initially. And HUAC, I'm sure we'll discuss later, it becomes synonymous with McCarthyism. McCarthy was not on that committee. Mm-hmm. because He was a senator. Mm-hmm. This is the House of Representatives. So at first, concentrates on Nazi sympathizers and the Ku Klux Klan. But with the Nazi-Soviet pact in 1939, life gets very difficult for American communists. Uh, Dies happens to be a racist segregationist and a self-promoter who becomes obsessed with rooting out communist spies. Hmm. Because that's kind of uh, more, more sort of sexy. So then in 1941, Hitler invades Russia, Japan attacks America, so Roosevelt and Stalin are now allies for the rest of the war. So that changes things again. So firstly, the American Communist Party bounces back and peaks with around 50,000 members, which doesn't sound like a lot, unless you are the Communist Party of the USA, in which case, that's your peak. Secondly, working with the Russians and needing to employ a lot of people in a hurry means there weren't proper vetting procedures and spies did infiltrate the US government. So have you heard of the Venona Project? No. So this was set up in 1943 by what became the NSA to decrypt intercepted messages from the Soviet intelligence services. It's kind of fascinating. It sort of reminds a little bit of the story of the Enigma Project over here. Most of the codebreakers were young women. They were doing this kind of amazing work. It actually ran until 1980, uh, but for various issues to do with secrecy and uh, agency dick swinging, <laughs> the decrypts weren't made public until 1995. If this were a thriller, Venona would be the vital information that the characters really could have done with knowing earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mentioned Samuel Dickstein, the, mm. the co-founder of HUAC. Uh, Venona showed that he was, in fact, a Soviet spy. Oh, my God, are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> so I will come back to Venona later. So after the war, the Republicans kick off a new red scare because they've been trying for years to oppose the New Deal, not getting very far. But when they tie it to communism, it really works. And uh, they win back both houses of Congress in the 1946 midterms. That's when, as you said, McCarthy gets elected. It's also when uh, Richard Nixon gets elected. Hmm. Uh, so a real, real gift to America. You those midterms.
1: a rather tepid role in this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, so in a September 45 polls, 39% of Americans described the USSR as peace-loving. Uh, two years later, it's down to 12%. Hmm. Uh, so the president at this point is Truman, Harry Truman, who succeeded Roosevelt. And he doesn't believe that communist infiltration is, in fact, a massive problem. He says, people are very much wrought up about the communist bugaboo, but I'm of the opinion the country is perfectly safe so far as communism is concerned. We have too many sane people.
1: Bugaboo is a word that I don't think we use enough no. nowadays.
0: <laughs> it's uh, it's known as the bugaboo speech. So <laughs> used by Harry Truman and Destiny's Child. <laughs> Uh, but he can't let himself be seen as soft on the reds, so he sort of reluctantly introduces a loyalty test for federal employees, which was designed for him by the FBI's J. Edgar Hoover, hmm. who will also appear hmm. later in the story. So, two and a half million government workers at that point. How many do you think were fired uh, because of this loyalty scheme and investigations? I don't
1: know. It's going to be. It's going to be a pitifully small number, isn't it? It's going to be like.
0: 216 or it's something. It's 102. 102. Yeah. we're um, doing too badly. But does this stop HUAC? It does not stop HUAC. <laughs> so it investigates communism in Hollywood. And this is a story that a lot of people will be familiar with. Ten party members are sent to jail for contempt of Congress after they attempt to say that their political affiliations are protected by the First Amendment, that it's a privacy issue. They were hoping that the Supreme Court would take the case. The Supreme Court did not take the case. They went to jail. Um, Who also investigates the State Department, particularly this kind of classic East Coast patrician Mm. liberal called uh, Alger Hiss, which is one of those names that people just are vaguely aware of because it's it's too good. It's too James Bond. (laughs) Um, The establishment rallies around him because he's one of theirs, uh, but this backfires because he's caught lying and indicted for perjury. And it later turns out in the Venona files that he was, in fact, a Soviet spy. And Richard Nixon makes his name in these in these hearings, so it's mm. all rather embarrassing for the people going, "Oh, don't worry about communists," mm-hmm. um, because there is actually a spy in the State Department. Well, I mean, we should also point out
1: it would be really weird if there were no Soviet spies in America at this point,
0: since they had been working together, and you know, there are a lot of people who were very sympathetic to you know the Soviet Union mm-hmm. for, for a, lot, a lot of time for very kind of positive reasons and they just kind of maybe didn't think too much about the perches and the gulags and so on.
1: Well also I mean not all of that you know, we're in the period where that stuff's starting to come out. Mm. But, you know, we're only in the beginning of that stuff starting to come out. I mean, really, when, you, you know, you, you think of, it's not until really 1938 that you get this real schism between sort of the Communist Party and liberal, progressive, right. sort of general society. So, and before that, of course, you have the sort of Great Depression that people have lived through and yep. sort of want solutions to the problems that they're being faced with. And
0: the Communist Party in the US was like the most active campaigner for, um, civil rights for black people. Huh. Obviously, the Democratic Party at that time was pretty racist, Mm -hmm. uh, as was the Republican Party. So a lot of the time, people were attracted to the Communist Party simply uh, on that issue. So, like I said, Truman's not a red baiter, doesn't want a witch hunt, doesn't really trust J. Edgar Hoover. All good instincts. (laughs) And during his 48 election campaign, which he wins, he, he attacks Huac. says the public hearings now underway are serving no useful purpose. On the contrary, they are doing irreparable harm to certain people, seriously impairing the morale of federal employees and undermining public confidence in the government. And they are simply a red herring. They are slandering a lot of people that don't deserve it. And after winning re-election, he actually planned to dismantle Huac, but because of Hiss's perjury trial, that's impossible, and the Soviets test their atom bomb, which was possible because of a Soviet spy mm. in the Manhattan Project. Um, you've got China, you've got the Korean War. I didn't War. know that, by the way. Did you know? That's I, why I was... kind of always just
1: assumed the Soviets independently
0: developed it. No, they actually just th- nicked it. Well, they would have got there, but they got there in 1949 because of a spy called Klaus Fuchs. Hmm. Also, another really, fantastically
1: villainous he really, name. He really
0: fucked <laughs> things up. Um,
1: I love... There was no way you were going to get away no, through this whole thing without not, saying that. That's not.
0: Now, the thing is, Truman, he's, he's overseen the Truman Doctrine, which is kind of a cornerstone of the Cold War, the foundation of NATO, the Berlin Airlift, support for anti-communist governments in Greece and Turkey, and the loyalty programme. And he's still seen a soft on communism. Hmm. And let's look at the public here. By 1949, 83% of Americans think Communist Party members should have to register, and 68% think it should be made illegal altogether. So basically, nobody can put the brakes on anti-communism at this point. And it's exactly at this point that McCarthy makes his wheeling speech.
1: I mean, he gets flooded with attention. And with the attention comes money, comes staff, comes information. He's struggling until really 52, when the Republicans get back into power under Eisenhower. And suddenly, he really has the whole machinery around him that he Mm. can actually implement in his committee. But even before that, like you say, he's got Hoover. I mean, he and Hoover are peas in a pod. They're meeting up for lunch all the time. When he writes letters to Hoover, they'll be typed up by the secretary. And it says, you know, Edgar at the top. He crosses it out and he writes boss in top. I mean, Hoover Mm. is his boss. Mm certainly more than the American president is or or his electorate. And the FBI basically pass him information uh, that he can use. And occasionally when he gets information from elsewhere, he cross checks it with them and they send him back the juiciest stuff that they can find. FBI agents are constantly sent off to work in his office when Mm. they leave the FBI. Essentially, he essentially works as a sort of outpost of the FBI. I mean, at this stage, and he is helped by two men. Um, One of them, who's going to be absolutely pivotal to what comes next is called uh, Roy Cohn. Now, Roy Kirk, it's it's amazing researching McCarthy where you think, like surely, I mean, this is like one of the worst human beings I've ever read about. Him. But in fact, you come across Roy Cohen and you're like, oh no, he's worse. He's actually like a worse person than McCarthy. Probably
0: best known yeah, to a lot yeah. of people like as a character in in Angels in America. Oh, right. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. in, in his sort of, in his later years. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had an exciting youth. I mean, listen, this.
1: this is from Henry Kissinger, of all people. He was super smart super manipulative and super out for himself. Now, coming from him, you sort of think, okay, well, that's you've pretty much demonstrated that. Uh, He was incredibly smart. He didn't seem to have any moral structure to his life at all. He's the right-hand man of McCarthy. And the core thing to understand there is, for whatever reason, McCarthy feels he cannot operate without him. He will sacrifice, and in fact, in the end, does sacrifice everything for that relationship. He's also interesting in his own terms. I mean, he's a Jewish man who spends most of his time with McCarthy persecuting and pursuing other Jewish men. Mm. Um, he's a gay man who spends most of his time with McCarthy, persecuting, pursuing gay men. I and mean, homosexuals were, as they called them, homosexuals were just targeted because it was considered an openness to blackmail so that you can be sort of approached by the Communist Party. So they were very explicit about it. They, were like, well, they very much went after them. Again, I would say whenever there's a spasm of fear and a search for an internal enemy, you can pretty much guarantee that it'll be Jewish people and gay men that get pursued in, in that. And see, what then gives this its psychodrama is the third man. I mean, the third man is David Shine, very attractive, blonde, very wealthy individual, no intellectual talents to speak of, who's brought in the very senior position. Really, I mean, there's no proof of this, but you you read this and it's quite hard to avoid it because Cone was basically in love with him or at least obsessed with him. So you have this relationship of McCarthy needs Cone. Cone needs shine. And these are the three at the top. These are the three that are in charge of, of almost everything. They're called the, the Cone and shine are called the boys by most people around them. There's also support from the media, from the Hearst Media empire, which you couldn't have done without, really. There's a sort of tacit complicity from the Democrats, who just sort of think, at best, this is a Republican problem. Let them deal with
0: it. Right. You right. know, there's
1: certain periods, you know, where they even have majorities, you know, where they, they could have taken charge of the, of the sort of committee structure. They don't. They don't for the reason, you know, I, I've, I don't want to draw these comparisons too strongly because they're not there to be made. But you know, if you, if you think after the Brexit years of just that sense of not, if you look at Labour now, not in, in the UK, not wanting to be triangulated into a position of being Remain. It's basically that times 1,000. Just You don't want to get triangulated into being the communist supporter. You know? And that's what, well, that's what they no, would have exactly, happened. That's
0: exactly It's the equivalent of how like, well, they're going to win back the Red Wall. Yeah, it's just yeah. like you couldn't be seen as soft on communism, even if you'd already proven that you weren't. Mm-hmm. You had to sort of keep proving it and be harder and harder.
1: You were never going to be safe. And ultimately, I think that when Eisenhower turns against McCarthy, I think the real thought that he has is, I'm not safe either. He'll come after me eventually as well. The Republicans do the same yeah. thing that they do under Trump. You know, they basically think he's a live wire. We don't like him. He's dangerous, but he's going after the right people. He's useful to us. So th-
0: they allow him to continue. So what's McCarthy's sort of day job essentially? What's, what's his committee?
1: The committee is to, un- I mean, it, it starts through it goes through various processes. I mean, it starts with the State Department and it works its way up until eventually the army where he bites off more than he can chew. Really, he's looking for his hiss. He's looking for someone he can hold up as this prime sort of example of like, look, I've uncovered someone. He never finds them. He, ne- he never, he, I, I didn't think, from what I've read, you know, there's sometimes that he accidentally stumbles on someone who was who a bit involved with something or other. But there's not really a single example you can hold up to say that he uncovered any any real spies at all. Most of the people, I mean, remember, these people who are guilty often by association, you know, as their wife or their parents Mm. or their aunt, who even then often weren't a member of the Communist Party or even a communist. But, you know, in university, signed a petition against racial segregation or something. You know, I mean, they're predominantly liberals. Is Most of the people that sort of get targeted are progressive, people that are progressive in university.
0: One area which really interests me is how it divided what you would call, I suppose, the anti-communist left the anti-communist center it's quite hard to sort of because there were like a lot of different sort of people teaming up there and then other people like james burnham max eastman irving Kristol, the kind of the sort of fathers of neoconservatism were like no 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 he, he, he's great but mm-hmm. even some fierce anti-communists were like he could really fuck this up so Whittaker chambers who's an ex-communist and he's the man that basically denounced alger hiss mm-hmm. he writes to william f buckley Um, real pioneering conservative thinker who was a big McCarthy fan. And Chambers says, we live in terror that Senator McCarthy will one day make some irreparable blunder which will play directly into the hands of our common enemy Mm -hmm. and discredit the whole anti-communist effort for a long while to come. Mm -hmm. So there was a sort of sense that a lot of people were just like, this guy could blow up.
1: And I think you see as well in in the economists who do take him on this sense of, this is unhelpful to us, firstly, because you're sabotaging our own government. I mean, mm. you, you take the sort of, you know, China experts. There's an argument that if you hadn't basically destroyed an entire generation of China experts in U.S. foreign policy, right, yeah. you might not have gotten into Vietnam. Yeah. You know, you might have had more intelligence there to prevent it from happening. And then also, of course, the more general philosophical view, which was what the hell is the difference between America and the Soviet Union if if we're now thought police? You know, I mean, there's there's a point where they're literally burning books. I want to make a special mention of Margaret Chase Smith. Who is the only woman in the Senate. She's a Republican and she's one of the few Republicans who really got to hold her head up high. I mean, she, and she gives an example of, I think, how that, how that philosophical argument was made. She, and this is on the floor of the Senate. She said, those of us who shout the loudest about Americanism in making character assassinations are all too frequently those who ignore some of the basic principles of Americanism, the right to criticize, the right to hold unpopular beliefs, the right to protest, mm. the right of independent thought. She was rare, though. And she got vitriolically attacked, as you can imagine, over the years to come. And really, her career wasn't able to get anywhere until McCarthy sort of self-sabotaged.
0: We hope you're enjoying this edition of Origin Story. We'd love making it. But hacking our way through the underworld of politics and history takes a lot of work if you want to do it properly. You can help us keep going and suggest topics we should tackle in the next series of the podcast by supporting Origin Story on the crowdfunding site Patreon. Back Origin Story for as little as £5 a month and you'll be helping Dorian and me to dig
1: even deeper into our research, discover more strange and illuminating moments from the hidden history of politics and culture, and generally drive ourselves to distraction on your behalf. You'll also get special benefits, including an extra episode every month where we answer your questions, and exclusive origin story mugs and T-shirts featuring inspiring and or possibly terrifying
0: quotes from our research. Search Patreon origin story podcast now to find out more or click the link in the show notes.
1: I want to just highlight that because I think the two most important groups in terms of facilitating McCarthy, I mean, the first is the White House. And it's that Eisenhower, I mean, afterwards, Eisenhower, Republican president, comes in 1952, has been sort of you know, a few people have tried to excuse him. I don't think you can excuse him. I don't think McCarthy could have gotten away with this if Eisenhower wasn't so supine and cowardly about it. Now, 1953, after the book burning episode, Eisenhower comes out. He does a speech in Dartmouth College. Don't join the book burners, he says to students. Don't be afraid to go in your library and read every book as long as the document does not offend our own ideas of decency. Then McCarthy flies into a rage. Days later, Eisenhower pops up again. He says he wouldn't, uh, quote, abide any document that attempts to persuade or propagandise America into communism.
0: I didn't, I know the first quote, but not the second.
1: Now McCarthy comes out immediately afterwards and thanks him for his, quote, commendable clarification. Now Eisenhower at the time, he's got 61% to 73% approval rating. Over those years, year after year after year, Americans vote him the person they most admire in the world. He was more popular than McCarthy. He was, If there was anyone who could have taken McCarthy mm. down, it was him. And he bottles it, and he bottles it, and he bottles it. The second group I just want to mention is, yeah. and this is, I think, where it gets more complicated and difficult. Some people don't like saying this, but it, it is the public. Like, ultimately, you have to blame the people. Now, he does not, you know, even in the height of it, 1954, the worst excesses, he's got 50% approval rating, 27% yeah. saying they don't approve. Now, When we talk about these psychological triggers of searching for the internal enemy, that's because we are prone to it. We are vulnerable to it. And that is exactly what you see with the American public in that period. If it wasn't for the public support, for that sense of fear, for that desire to blame an internal enemy, McCarthy would not have been able to do the things that he did.
0: So I think what makes McCarthy so successful and why it's McCarthyism and not Hooverism or (laughs) Quackism is that he hacks the media and he works out how to hack the media now there's something that you might be aware of anybody who follows I think we're all because of internet we are far more aware now I think of how different the American media is Mm -hmm. and American newspapers back then still large degree now have this obsession with objectivity and the separation between news and editorial so in news if a politician makes a claim then you you have to report it not to say whether or not it's true obviously this has worked very well over Mm. the years (laughs) So McCarthy talks about... Uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned this earlier, the Wheeling speech. A conspiracy so immense as to dwarf any venture in the history of man. A conspiracy so black that when it is finally exposed, its principles shall be forever deserving of the maledictions of all honest men. Oh, wow. Which, I mean, yeah. good, He's quite good, mingled. Good, good speechifying. <laughs> <laughs> You're doomed, Gordon. Doomed. <laughs> so that's not true, but like you said... Celebrity Overnight. So within three months, he's on the cover of Time and Newsweek, hmm. uh, you know, speaking invitations up the yaya. The editorial pages denounce him as a dangerous demagogue. The news pages are doing promo for him because, like you said, he, he was actually good company,
1: mm-hmm. which is
0: a weird thing to think of. He liked to drink. <laughs> I mean, he was an alcoholic. <laughs> oh, he liked to drink. <laughs> liked to tipple. <laughs> But, you know, made him sociable. Uh, <laughs> liked to game of the cards. And he generated the sort of 50s equivalent of, of clicks. And if you're on the McCarthy beat, it helps your career. He also worked out these other things. He would time a press conference just before the deadline. So there was no time to check anything. Mm-hmm. He just had to, mm-hmm. uh, so you, no time to fact check him. That he was would, a Hoover trick, by the way. Oh, was it? Hoover told him that trick, yeah. And he, and he would leak information out. He would stretch a story out over several days. And if any papers do challenge him, he accuses them of being soft on communism. uh, Mm -hmm. At rallies, singles out hostile reporters in front of his angry supporters. Again, this isn't making me think of anyone. (laughs) No, nobody's ever done that since. (laughs) Bullies them, threatens them, sues them, even physically attacks uh, a columnist Mm -hmm. um, at a dinner. And Richard Nixon has to break it up. Which is is kind of incredible. Um, and, And all the time, he's obviously lying. So in his memoir, the, the great New York Times reporter James Scotty Reston explains how the trick worked. So he writes, he knew that big lies produced big headlines. He also knew that most newspapers would print almost any outrageous charge a United States senator made in public, provided he put his name to it and counted on the fact that newspapers didn't like to print denials from anonymous sources. That's changed a little. Hmm. Later, he writes, many newspapers condemned him on their editorial pages, but gave him plenty of space on the front pages, which had far more effect on public opinion. His charges may not have made sense, but they made headlines and they sold a lot of papers. McCarthy knew how to take advantage of this cult of objectivity. And then mm-hmm. he says that a lot of people, the reporters at that time, were later ashamed that mm-hmm. they didn't they couldn't work out a way to sort of deal with it. And one reporter said he'd never seen the press so frustrated. It's as if you lacked the words to describe what's going on.
1: Mm.
0: So it was like kind of like he'd got inside He was like a virus inside the system. And they were like, well, we can't say he's lying mm-hmm. in the news pages. Uh, and the New York Times obviously has been criticised like why are you printing this bullshit and its response was it is difficult if not impossible to ignore charges by Senator McCarthy just because they are usually proved exaggerated or false the <laughs> remedy lies with the reader yeah. so the reader is meant to investigate mm. and find out if what they've just read in the paper is true uh, and another columnist retorted that's rather like saying that if a restaurant serves poisoned food it is up <laughs> to the diner to refuse it <laughs> This is, it's, it's just astonishing, ridiculous, astonishing, isn't it? right?
1: But it's just amazing, just,
0: it, it, you could literally be talking about the last five years. Anyway, so we've been talking a lot about, I suppose, from McCarthy's End of the Telescope, but we should talk a bit about life on the blacklist, sort of what the blacklist was, because it was not technically a list, mm-hmm. and to sort of think about, I suppose, the people that it affected. Yeah, I mean, the
1: guy, I wanted to highlight one guy who is not, In any way, the worst off by this, you know, you could, I mean, you know, according to some estimates, we're certainly talking about tens of thousands of people, we're arguably talking about hundreds of thousands of people who, you know, were either slandered or someone's thrown in jail. Very, very often, most of the time, lost any ability to pursue their career. And then the sort of the emotional stories you hear about what it was like for them when their kids came home and were being bullied at school and being told that your dad's mm-hmm. a you know, just the social ostracization and humiliation of it. And that happens to countless people, teachers, engineers, you know, lect- I mean, just people all across society. The, but the person I want to talk about, just I find his story so amazing, it's called Carl Foreman. And he was the scriptwriter for a film called High Noon. Mm. High Noon came out in 1952. It's sort of considered one of the great classics, especially that era in Hollywood. It's the most watched film in sort of presidential cinema, which is something I didn't know existed. But it's the most requested film by U.S. presidents since it came out. Uh, won four Academy Awards. It was used by Solidarity, the Polish movement, in 1989 as their main poster. Oh. And even now, the phrase High Noon, when we said, like, you know, Theresa May faces High Noon or whatever. That, we take it from that film. Yeah. Um, and the plot of this film is basically there's a sort of like local sheriff, Western Times, He's getting married and this sort of villain, villainous outlaw that he'd gotten out of this town, is returning on a train. And as he he finishes his his wedding, they find that his three sort of outlaw allies have come in and said he's arriving at high noon on this train. And the film is basically just the sheriff going around trying to find help from his deputy, from his wife, from his ex-girlfriend, from the priest in this telling scene in a church, from the local businessman, from his oldest friends, and no one will help him. Everyone's too scared. I'm not going to give away the ending, but it end, you know that just up getting towards the end, he walks off completely alone to go face these guys. Yeah. Now, Foreman, uh, who wrote this, he was he came from a sort of Russian Jewish background. He was from Chicago. What he wouldn't do is he wouldn't name names. Mm. He didn't mind the rest of the process really. He begrudged it, but he didn't mind it. But he wouldn't name names. And so as he was writing the script. I mean, this is how he described it, because originally it was sort of it was a very different kind of um, thing. He said about naming names, no hero me and no saint, believe me, but way too much to pay. And gradually, really, that's when the production team, his career, his friendships just drifted away from him. He said, you could walk down the street and see friends of yours recognize you, turn and walk the other way. It was these events which made me think of a story about Hollywood under the political gun, as it were, and its reaction. The certain lines of defence were shortening, and people were falling away, and the authorities, our authorities, the studio heads, were all changing their tune, and people were more and more scared, all the time. So in the film, really, the sheriff is him, to be honest, than anyone else facing the, the committee. Um, and the townspeople are your friends, your allies. The film comes out. John Wayne, who, when you read about John Wayne in this period, he is an absolute piece of shit. I have never. I, oh, oh yeah, yeah He yeah. is just a dreadful human being. Uh, he called the film the most un-American thing I've seen in my whole life. <laughs> the Russian newspaper Pravda came from the other side. He said it celebrated um, the insignificance of the people and the grandeur of the individual. I think you get an impression here of why I really like this film. And he eventually, he, after he goes to the committee, he basically goes into exile in London. He arrives in London. He he kind of falls in love with London actually. And he calls it. He has a lovely quote about it that I like. He calls it. It's a writer's town devoted to small, neurotic, lonely, sensitive, insecure idiots like me. <laughs> Which I obviously firmly agree with. Um, he actually gets approached by Churchill to to do um sort of the the screenplay for his early life. And he sort of tells Churchill, hmm. uh, just so you know, you know, I uh, used to be in the Communist Party and I'm on the blacklist in the US. Churchill replies to him again. This might this actually. Slightly rekindles my patriotism. Churchill replies, oh, I know all about you, but we don't really like political blacklists in England. And speaking for myself, I don't care what a man believed in when he was a boy. My concern is whether or not he can do the job. Wow. Despite all of that, though, he is a broken man. I mean, he says about the writing process, he says, every page was agony. Every page was lifeless and dull after he got to London. And that's not London doing that, that's exile. His marriage falls apart. His wife just says he's full of hate. 1952, the State Department say, uh, you can't come back, basically, because we think you're a threat to the United States. And he's in exile in London until 1979. And that's basically it for him. And he, I have to tell you, is absolutely in the top tier of lucky victims of McCarthy. He had about as good a time of it as anyone I've read about, and that's what he went through. The problem is,
0: is you'll be able to tell me the, the most famous Huac question:
1: What is it that they ask people? Have you now, or have you ever been a member of the? Yeah,
0: Communist it's party? have you ever been? Mm. So it meant you could have joined the party only during the war, and then left as soon as the war was over, and still been in trouble. So you could have joined the party for the exact duration of the time that Stalin was America's ally. Mm. And still be in trouble. And the allegation was that they could they, they could turn studio pictures into uh, propaganda movies and sub- subvert the messages. But of course... <laughs> Which incidentally was exactly what Carl Foreman was doing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, that's, but that's one side for a minute. Well,
0: but yeah, you know, Pravda. <laughs> Pravda didn't get it. Um, but Huac found no evidence of communist infiltration in Hollywood. So again, mm. it's like you've got a difference between their actual conclusion of their investigation and the actions that were happening. So basically the only justification for blacklisting was publicity, keep up appearances. The movie producers, big, big names. I think you see some of this in the movie Mank. It was just PR. They were ruining people's careers and actually getting rid of some very talented people just so they looked like they weren't soft on communism. It's like when you think... its I mean, they didn't go to... I mean, some of them went to jail for a short time. It's not the same as having like an 18-year jail sentence. Right, right. But it is still having... You know, we talk about uh, women... Who have been abused in Hollywood, mm. and how they lost their careers? They, they lost, There was all this work that they could have done if not for this, you know, this act of malice and intimidation. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of what you're looking at there. Some some committed suicide, you know. And there's never a formal list, so there was no blacklist. You couldn't go. Oh, here's the evidence, and this is this is why I'm appealing it. You just wouldn't get hired. And I just it was all end by saying I think that. That subsequently, what happened was there was so much shame and so much anger. At people like Elia Kazan, director of On the Waterfront, who did name names, mm-hmm. um, that there was a huge kind of rage at anybody who had sided with HUAC. Donald Trump had rather magnanimously said that there were lots of reasons why people couldn't take a stand. Like I said earlier, might be secretly gay, just financially precarious. There were immigrants who were at risk of deportation. There were people that were suffering from mental health problems. There were some people who had been treated like shit by members of the Communist Party Mm -hmm. and actually thought, I don't owe them anything. And uh, in 1970, he gave a speech. um, He said, the blacklist was a time of evil, and no one on either side who survived it came through untouched by evil. (laughs) None of us, right, left or centre, emerge from that long nightmare without sin. What brings McCarthy down?
1: I think it's, in a fitting way, given what you've just said, I, I, I kind of think it's TV. There's more to it than that. He goes for the army, which is different than going for Hollywood or, you know, going for these effete intellectuals in, you know, the State Department. He goes for the spine of the military industrial state and it, and it kind of bites him on the ass. And in fact, the way in which he goes for the army finally forces Eisenhower to, to do something about him. Um, I think it's telling as soon as Eisenhower does do that, how quickly McCarthy becomes a thing of the past. I think that's one of the most damning things you can say about Eisenhower is when he does find the steel, almost by accident, McCarthy's history. But ultimately, I think more than anything, it's television. As you pointed out, he knows how to work the press. Mm. And you're suddenly in this period where TV takes over. And on TV, he gets the full spotlight on him. And I mean this in, occasionally in a very, very superficial way. Okay, like I mean, he starts shaving twice a day when he knows the, the TV's on. So he just can't stop the five o'clock shadow and it makes him look shifty. He wears this makeup he, he selects. It's a very, very bad choice. Um, Michael Straight, the New Republic editor, described that he said a roll of flesh beneath his black eyebrows came down over his upper eyelids, making slits of his eyes and giving his face an almost satanic look. Now, I don't know if you, have you seen um Good Night and Good Luck, the Clooney film about this? Yeah. This, it's really, te- it's very good, by the way. I watched it in, in prep for this and also just because I, I love it. It's very telling that, it, that in it, every, they get actors in, Robert Downey Jr., George Clooney, whatever it's play around, but they don't bring in an actor to play McCarthy <laughs> because no one could be more demonic <laughs> than this guy. As soon as he comes on, he looks like a villain. And then he he really starts making the the mistakes. So the first mistake is Ralph Swicker. I mean, listen to the the record of this guy. He's a brigadier general, hero of D-Day, Bronze Star, Silver Star, Legion of Merit, British Distinguished Service Order, and the Croix de Guerre. I mean, this is not a guy, you know, who you're going to try and bully. That's exactly what he does. Under the table, he's been passing information to McCarthy, but when he takes the stand, McCarthy says to him, okay, so what do you think should happen to generals who don't pursue communists vigilantly enough? And he obviously sees the danger to himself. and He goes, I don't think we should do anything. McCarthy's response. And I wish I could sort of, it's not good when we read it. Because I think with demagoguery, you do have to hear it in a way, because it, it's there is this, this sort of satanic charisma to him. There's a kind of rat-a-tat timber to his speech, which is quite, I think, charismatic in its own sort of weird way. Mm. And he, sort, he says to him, then, General, you should be removed from any command. Any man who has been given the honour of being promoted to a general who says I will protect any other general who protected communists is not fit to wear that uniform, General. And there's a kind of degree of shock at how rude he's been. But the real problem comes because of Shine this is really where the spotlight shines properly on McCarthy and he finds himself in the position of his victims that in the background since 1953 shine had been called up for military service shine one of those three guys right at the top next to Cohn and McCarthy and Cohn and McCarthy had gone out of their way to prevent him from having to go. They'd had all these backroom meetings with the army, constantly trying to convince them not to put him overseas, not to make him do it at all. When he does have to do military service, they ensure he can basically leave whenever he likes. He's literally eating filet mignon (laughs) when everyone else gets army rations. And whenever the army tries to fight back, Cohn says, I mean, at one point, quote, he says, we'll wreck the army through our investigation into them. And they're clearly leveraging it. Now, when this story gets out, it gets out because Eisenhower... I mean, he's basically had his Secretary of State for the Army, Robert T. Stevens, utterly humiliated when he tried to make peace talks with McCarthy. And he just Mm -hmm. sort of decides, kind of by accident, he calls a press conference Eisenhower. He's like, right, I'm going to take him on. He bottles it again. And yet McCarthy goes ahead and delivers his counter-press conference, not realizing that that had happened. And he sort of basically says that, you know, the president has, has no commitment to taking on communism. That finally gets... Eisenhower to do something about it. He calls in an army lawyer, John Adams, and says, "Keep a diary of all the communications you have with McCarthy with Cohn." Keeps it, it. It sort of detonates on the media scene, and a new committee is formed to find out what the head is going on between McCarthy, between the army, between Cohn, between Shine, and this becomes like the TV event of the century. You know mm. how, um, in the UK we talk about uh, like the coronation was the moment that everyone bought a TV set. Well, in America, it's this. (laughs) And by the way, of those two options, I think the Americans are more sensible because this sounds like much better TV. And then we get to the moment that sort of breaks him, really. The army lawyer who's been brought in for this sort of committee is called Joe Welch. And there's been a private deal. The deal is between Cone and Welch. And it basically says, look, don't mention my draft dodging on Coinside. And in exchange... We're not going to mention Frederick Mm -hmm. Fisher Jr. He was basically a guy who worked with Welch um, and who would once been a member of the National Lawyers Guild, which is basically just a sort of liberal organization. There was a few communists in it, but ultimately it was a liberal organization. And they kept to that deal until June the 9th, 1954. And at that point, Cohn's giving witness testimony. Welch is absolutely pounding him and suddenly McCarthy interrupts. Mr. Chairman, in view of that question, and then he raises the National Lawyers Guild. He says, he says, Fisher, your partner, wow. has been with it long after, quote, long after it has been exposed as the legal arm of the Communist Party. And now, at that point, if you look at the video, you can actually see Cone start to sort of go, no, no, like don't do that. Don't break the deal. But by doing it, he breaks the deal. And Welsh responds with which uh, these words end McCarthy. They destroy, they destroy him. You could arguably say they end up killing him. He says, until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. Let us not assassinate this lad further. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency at all? I really love the way that's formulated, by the way. It's not like, have you no sense of decency left? It's, have you left no sense of decency at all? And I mean, immediately in that room, people break out into applause. They call a recess. People filter out. McCarthy is just left on the seat with his palms turned up saying, looking at his age, you're going, what did I do? What did I do? And that's it. He doesn't realize it yet, but that's the end of him. It's like the spell mm. is broken. Of course, it's not enough on its own. It takes this build-up, the Eisenhower stuff, going after the army, having TV, the glare of TV there. But ultimately, it breaks him.
0: I want to get back to the Venona project. It published about 2,900 decrypted messages revealing the existence of 349 Soviet spies in the US uh, in the late 40s, of which 171 were identified by name, including Al-Jahis and Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, Mm -hmm. who, a whole other story, but were executed for espionage in in 53. Um, How many of those spies do you think McCarthy exposed? Don't know. Zero. Right. (laughs) Because basically, by that point, the American Communist Party was bankrupt. Um, a, a major spy called Elizabeth Bentley had defected and broken up the biggest Russian espionage ring in the country. Mm-hmm. So the spy problem, if we're talking about his justification that he was actually – it's about national security and it's about keeping, getting spies out of the U.S. government, which is legitimate, mm-hmm. that had already been done. So Ted Morgan, I mentioned in, in red, says – What was McCarthy's contribution to this dismantling of the Communist Party, except for inducing hysteria in the general population, little or nothing? The tragedy of it, he says, is that Venona was kept secret. Mm -hmm. The truth was kept secret. He says the timely release of Venona could have shown the American people the true extent of Soviet espionage, which was far reaching, while showing also that by 1950, when Senator McCarthy got going, it was all but over with says it would have nipped McCarthyism in the bud. Only in the absence of Venona could McCarthy feed on collective fears regarding immense conspiracies and treacherous leaders. So McCarthy's real achievement, if you want to call it an achievement, mm. was to popularise what Richard Hofstadter calls the paranoid style in American politics. It's a famous essay where he's largely drawing on McCarthyism. Uh-huh. McCarthy supporters went on to form immediately far right groups like the John Birch Society. Because McCarthyism itself, I think, can be seen as a conspiracy theory. He uses the phrase, a conspiracy so immense. Yeah, yeah. It does not exist. Who does he demonize? And who does who act demonize? Hollywood liberals, coastal elites, mm-hmm. Jewish people. Mm. It's like the same people that the right demonizes now. And uh, in A Conspiracy So Immense, which is an amazing book by David Oshinsky. He says, above all, the senator provided a simple explanation of America's decline in the world. Although looking back now, you'd think this is actually the glory days of America. That's also weird. He spoke of a massive internal conspiracy <laughs> directed by communists and abetted by government officials who came to include the Republican president of the United States. He provided names, documents and statistics. In short, the appearance of... Of diligent research, mm. which is what mm-hmm. conspiracy theorists do, and so then you look at what happens after McCarthy's fall. Is the Supreme Court, Earl Warren, becomes the chief justice, dismantles a lot of the sort of legal apparatus of McCarthyism. So anti-communism sort of shifts from Congress to the FBI, and then you have stuff like the COINTELPRO program, spying on people like Martin Luther King, and McCarthyism becomes basically Hooverism, and it's even worse. Mm-hmm. Because it's completely secret.
1: And that's interesting.
0: And the thing about McCarthy is he was weirdly, as Chinsky points this out, he was weirdly unambitious. He had one idea and no idea how to build on it. Mm. he didn't never thought about running for president. He, he, he had this job and this is what he was going to do. He had no sense of what he was going to do next. This is partly perhaps because he was just sort of drinking so much. Mm. So in some ways you think, oh, my God, what a brilliant l- way to kind of launch his career. But he had no sense of what to do next. Whereas, meanwhile, in the background, you've got Nixon. He knows where he's going to, how yeah. he's going to use this platform. Yeah. You've got Hoover. He knows what he's going to be doing, mm-hmm. you know, and for the rest of his life, basically. And so McCarthy ends up, I think, this really sort of pitiful figure. And that McCarthyism goes on without him and sort of penetrates American society in a much sort of deeper and and less visible way. And I suppose that is, if we talk about McCarthyism in that sense, well, that ends with the Cold War, right? If we talk about anti-communism. So to kind of come back to our original definition and and why we're doing this episode, what do you think McCarthyism means now when it's used in contexts which are nothing to do with communism? Where do you see it?
1: Yeah, I mean, what strikes me is that there's sort of, there's, the American lesson, and then there's the general political lesson. Because I think to a certain extent he, he is a phenomenon that could be constricted to America. Because that type of demagogue, the bully, mm. doesn't really, if you look, appeal to Brits. Like we have had some terrible prime ministers in this country. I don't think you could describe any of their public personas as bullying. The closest is Margaret Thatcher. Mm. You know, but generally I mean, you look at someone like Boris Johnson, I mean, you know, lots of them are bullies behind the scenes. But that's not the outward face. Now, right. McCarthy, Trump, these people are bullies. Yep. You know, they celebrate, they lather themselves in it. And that part is an American phenomenon. But what then comes is, and this is applicable everywhere, is the thought control. The idea of there is the people, pure, good. I think he gets this on the farm. He When he thinks of metropolitan elites, effete, always that kind of trace of, oh, probably a bit gay. Yeah, he yeah. hates them. Yeah, and yeah. he hates those guys. Really, it's, it's a kind of class war with him. It's an attack on liberals. And there's a methodology there. An attack on the, on the principles of liberalism, really sort of free thought, eccentricity, personal autonomy, free society, the separation of powers, you know, the idea that the people are not the, the only sort of source by which political legitimacy rests. But then there's the method. And this, I think, is the real sting in the tail. I think this is crucial. Because Cohn doesn't go away he doesn't die like McCarthy does in 1957 he becomes a real influence peddler in Washington and in 1970 he strikes up a friendship with Donald Trump
0: I thought you were going to go a young property developer <laughs> <laughs> his name was Donald J. Trump I, know,
1: yeah. <laughs> I could have could have got some drums some spooky music a here yeah <laughs> Um, And that is a close friendship. I mean, these guys talk, you know, up to five times a day. He tells him, when you lie, you lie aggressively. Hmm. When you demonize, you demonize brutally. He gives him the tricks of the trade that he picked up from McCarthy. Now, Cohn's final lover in the last few years of his life, Peter Fraser, said, I hear Roy in the things Trump says quite clearly. If you say it aggressively, and loudly enough, it's the truth. There's this myth around McCarthy of, with the full glare of public attention, the bully wilts, right? The thing is, you look at what's happened with Trump, hmm. and that's not the case. We had the full glare of public attention, and it hasn't wilted. In fact, you look right now, and you see sustained support for him. And yeah, that actually yeah. that, when you see the, the ghost of McCarthyism, that like I say, is not just a philosophical run, it's a literal passing of the baton through Cone to Trump, it is still there and it hasn't wilted. And I think even now, today, over half a century later, it provides a clear and present danger to the United States.
0: Well, I, I suppose I want to reinsert McCarthy into McCarthyism. It's blowing something up and blowing up and particularly then picking on particular individuals. And I think you see the right doing it now with Black Lives Matter antifa critical race theory mm. and there are these versions these conspiracy so immense versions and these things exist their organizations or their case of critical race theory it's a kind of it's a kind of legal theory of, of systemic racism but the way that they are talked about by McCarthy-esque figures and Tucker Carlson is kind of you know the sort of bow tie version of mm. McCarthy isn't he They're just blown up into something that they're not. And I think that that is, again, that lesson of McCarthyism was that you take a germ of something that is real and then you kind of build a huge, intricate, politically useful and sometimes financially profitable conspiracy theory around it. I think that's the real (laughs) lesson. When people talk about, oh, McCarthyism isn't really about McCarthy, it's like, well... You always have to ask, well, why him? What was he doing that Huac wasn't? It's about performance and it's about emotion and it's about the media. It's not really to do with committee hearings, evidence. The whole point is a lot of the time he didn't have any evidence. And so I, I think that is what McCarthyism teaches us now. Yeah, you know, I want to add one more thing here which goes back to what we discussed in the introduction that that, that if, if Trump is the heir of McCarthy in some ways McCarthyism is used as this generic um, you know synonym for witch hunt and and being treated very unfairly so you know now that we've really kind of dug deep into mccarthyism do you think that it, there is there are cases where it is valid to use that or does it do a disservice to um, to the victims of McCarthyism. Is it just an is it just an archaic word? No, I think you can still use it. You should just be careful about making
1: sure that it includes the core qualities of what took place. You know, you're dealing... Because as we talked about throughout the last hour, you're dealing with a process that takes place an awful lot. You know, if we just look at that kind of core mechanic, that idea of, like, when people feel threatened you know, in terms of their in-group, when they're casting around for enemies, when they'll seize hold of conspiracy theories in order to target the outsider and, you know, people that they naturally don't trust. This is a process that you will see again and again. And there's sort of an advantage when you're targeting it, when you're an opponent of that kind of thought, in having this word McCarthyism that is has such a heavy and justifiably heavy negative connotation to go, well, actually, hang on a minute this is the thing that you're doing that's just like that other thing, right? Mm-hmm. You can say that about the Dreyfus affair if you want, but most people don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. But with McCarthy, they kind of do. And so as long as you're being accurate about those core characteristics rather than just saying, someone accused me of a thing, you know, yeah. then I think there's a perfectly legitimate use for it.
0: And I suppose one area where, where it's sort of valid, when we're talking about McCarthyism beyond McCarthy, you know, the, the sort of the, the unofficial blacklist, is that it is more valid, I think, in cases where there is no due process there is no explanation Mm -hmm. you know where people basically couldn't answer their accusers because they didn't know what their accusers who their accusers were they didn't know what they had been accused of you know and i feel like that that is um, that is a sinister habit i think people should be allowed to know who you know what they're being accused of and have a chance to defend themselves but the kind of The self-pity, the sort of melodramatic self-pity, the way in which it's often used, um, I think I find incredibly offensive when we talked about those people, whether that be, you know, screenwriters, Mm -hmm. teachers, Mm -hmm. lawyers, civil servants, um, whose lives were destroyed by this. And I think that is, that's obviously, it's so different from being suspended from Twitter or even being, you know, suspended from from the Labour Party. It's not on the same scale, doesn't have the same viciousness and sort of industrial dishonesty mm-hmm. behind it. And I think that we are rightly uh, careful about certain analogies. You, you, you don't go, this is like, you know, um, but Holocaust is not an analogy that is thrown around lightly, right? Mm-hmm. And rightly mm-hmm. so. This is Kristallnacht or whatever. Um, whereas McCarthyism has always sort of d- been detached from that because it didn't involve physical violence. And it just seems that it's something that you can just throw about when you feel that there's a group of people who don't like you. Uh, and I feel like that's one of the things that digging back into the history has reminded me that, you know, you, the, the anal- an analogy, historical analogy, I think does require a certain degree of perspective and respect
1: Okay, let's wrap things up. Thank you very much for joining us on the very first episode of uh, Origin Story. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. If you have anything that you want clarified or that you think we got wrong or just ideas or something funny to say, or ideas for a future episode, by the way, we will happily accept all of those, send us an email to originstory at podmasters.co.uk. If you check the show notes for this episode, you're going to see the books that we read and a little bit about what we thought about them and which ones we suggest that you read. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Origin Story is written and presented by Ian Dunt
0: and Dorian Linsky. The music was by Jade Bailey, with audio production by me, Alex Reese. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and Origin Story is a
1: Podmaster's production.